Good afternoon. This meeting of the Senate Foreign Relations Subcommittee on Multilateral International Development, Multilateral Institutions, and International Economic Energy and Environmental Policy will come to order. The purpose of today's meeting is to receive testimony related to energy and international development. Today's meeting will be divided into two panels. The first panel consists of Ms. Rachel Kite, Special Representative of the United Nations Secretary General for Sustainable Energy for All and Chief Executive Officer of Sustainable Energy for All. Ms. Kite's appearing voluntarily today as a courtesy to brief the committee and we are honored to have you here today, Ms. Kite. Following this panel, we will convene a second panel with three witnesses. They include Dr. Todd Moss. He is Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development and at Rice University's Baker Institute. And Mr. Juwao Talaki. No, I didn't practice that beforehand. <laughs> He's program director at the Purpose Climate Lab. And finally, I'd like to welcome a fellow Hoosier, Mr. Paul Mitchell. Paul's the president and chief executive officer of the Energy Systems Network based in the great city of Indianapolis, Indiana. On behalf of the subcommittee, I welcome each of you. As I said, the purpose of today's meeting is to discuss the intersection between energy and international development. But before we begin, I'd like to offer a few observations to frame that discussion. Earlier this year, I co-chaired a bipartisan Center for Strategic and International Studies task force. Uh, the, the topic of that task force was reforming and reorganizing U.S. foreign assistance, focusing on increasing the efficiency and effectiveness of U.S. development efforts overseas. Now, my starting point for that task force and my starting point for today's hearing is that U.S. international development is not an end in and of itself. De development, rather, is a tool or a means to do good while promoting America's security and economic interests. Our country has seen that poverty, instability, and governance vacuums often create opportunities for our enemies. They generate threats to Americans and compel more costly military interventions later more costly in terms of lives and treasure. Benjamin Franklin's often quoted as saying that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. That's why I have been and will continue to be a strong supporter of U.S. international development efforts. But that doesn't mean we should reflexively accept all U.S. international development programs as they currently exist. On the contrary, Congress must constantly scrutinize and reassess U.S. international development programs, asking tough questions on behalf of the taxpayers and our national interests. We must ensure these programs are optimally designed and Im implemented. Now, when I ask some of these questions and survey U.S. international development programs, a few key points emerge. Let me quickly highlight just three of them. First, it's difficult to overstate the importance of energy in international development. It was Dr. Moss who stated in his prepared testimony, quote, mass electrification can be catalytic for reducing poverty and deprivation while generating growth and prosperity, 
It can also generate revenue for governments in the developing world, enabling them to address challenges within their borders more effectively with less foreign assistance. After all, we should seek to transition and enable recipients of U.S. foreign assistance, not perpetuate dependence. Second, there have to be significant changes in the energy sector and the developing world that must guide our efforts. In addition to the fracking revolution and the increasing importance of natural gas, we also see many exciting innovations related to alternative energy and public-private partnerships. U.S. international development efforts should reflect and harness these developments. That's one of the reasons why I'm so excited to have Paul Mitchell here from Indiana's Energy Systems Network. The federal government and our international partners can benefit from some of the cutting-edge development that Indiana's Energy Systems Network has achieved. They've already done much internationally, and I'm confident they can do more. We also see there's enormous projected population growth in Africa, and we must help our partners there create jobs. As Dr. Moss states in his prepared testimony, power is absolutely essential to creating the tens of millions of new jobs that Africa needs every year. He continues, there is no scenario where Africa is stable and thriving without a rapid expansion of the power sector. I agree. Finally, as I've researched this issue, I've been impressed once again with the goodness and generosity of the American people. We see many American companies, individuals, and cooperatives doing good abroad when it comes to energy and international development. I would cite as an example Indiana Electric Cooperatives. They have a uh, project known as Project Indiana. And as part of this effort, according to IEC, dozens of Hoosiers have traveled repeatedly to Guatemala at their own expense to install 61 miles of electric lines there in five villages. All 38 electric distribution cooperatives and the two generation and transmission cooperatives in my home state of Indiana have been involved in this impressive effort. More than 3,100 Guatemalans now have power for the first time as a result of these efforts. Churches, schools, and a health clinic now have power, improving the lives of Guatemalans and generating durable goodwill for the United States. This is just one example of Americans at their best. With those observations in mind, I'd now like to turn to Ranking Member Merkley for his opening statement. Senator Merkley. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, and I sure appreciate our experts coming to share their insights with us today. As those who are focused on international development uh, know, many people around the world lack access to electricity and to clean and reliable sources of fuel for cooking, for home heating, and for transportation. It is now 2017. We think of ourselves in a very modern era, and yet one out of six individuals around the globe does not have access to electricity. 600 million of these individuals live in sub-Saharan Africa, another 300 million in India. Access to clean and renewable energy in developing countries can provide affordable and reliable energy, but also significantly impact local poverty 
and provide public health benefits. As a result of technological innovation, we have seen the price of solar and wind energy drop dramatically, as has the cost of battery storage. This means that communities that lack access to electricity now have an affordable option to gain access by building microgrids, smaller self-contained grids that can meet the needs of isolated community more quickly and affordably than waiting for an electric utility to make significant investments to expand the electric grid to the community. Decentralized grids powered by local renewable energy sources usually have far lower initial capital investment requirements. Not only that, but economically few things bring greater opportunities for impoverished communities to develop small business and other economic activity than providing electricity access. For developing countries without universal or widespread access to reliable energy and electric grids, there are opportunities to bring these communities into the 21st century with more resilient, more economically viable, cleaner energy sources. Electricity can provide lights for schools and homes. It can power machines for small businesses. It's a linchpin for participating in the modern economy. Electricity can also provide the opportunity for microenterprises that I've seen both in India and in Africa. For example, when an individual has a small solar panel that charges a battery, and then they use that to charge cell phones for others, creating such a small business. But electricity is not the whole story. There are twice as many individuals, as compared to those who lack electricity, who lack access to clean fuel for cooking food and instead use wood or, or charcoal for cooking even when cooking indoors. These fuels can cause enormous indoor air pollution, causing an estimated 4 million premature deaths annually and contributing to a wide range of illnesses, including pneumonia, low birth weight in children, lung cancer, blindness, and heart disease. Women and children often bear a disproportionate share of these health impacts because it's common in many countries that they spend more hours indoors. The good news is that there are clean and affordable fuel options for cooking as well, and I hope we'll hear more about that today. There are clear benefits to billions of people around the world to getting access to clean, affordable, sustainable sources of energy. But we should keep in mind that this transformation has significant benefits for us here at home. America is safer when we're able to make progress in addressing the root poverty issues that increase the possibility of radicalization and extremism. Bringing new sources of energy to underserved communities can also reduce conflicts among countries or ethnic groups fighting over limited resources. Investment in energy development, which has such immediate impacts on people's lives, promotes trust and good faith between developing communities and the broader international community. And on the jobs front, as I believe our witnesses will attest today, our investment in bringing renewable and sustainable energy to developing communities is a win-win, creating new job opportunities in the countries where we are working to provide access while providing markets for U.S.-based businesses that produce technology to support sustainable energy solutions. I really am looking forward to the testimony today. Uh, sustainable energy access is transforming development in many parts of the world, and we need to understand it promote it, and benefit from it here at home in terms of security as well. Thank you. Well, I, I thank our, our ranking member. And uh, Ms. Kite, uh, once again, uh, thank you to, uh, for uh, appearing before the subcommittee. 
Your full written statement will be included in the record, and I welcome you to summarize your written statement in about five minutes, please. Chairman Young, uh, Ranking Member Merkley, uh, I appreciate the invitation to brief you today. Thank you very much, other members of the subcommittee. In, in 2015, the international community agreed a set of sustainable development goals. Sustainable Development Goal 7 is to secure affordable, reliable, sustainable and modern energy for all by 2030. Its targets include a doubling of the rate of improvement in energy efficiency, doubling of the amount of renewable energy in the mix and universal access to sustainable energy. Of course, later in 2015, the Paris Agreement on Climate Change put the energy transition at the forefront of a time-sensitive economic transformation to cleaner and more inclusive sustainable growth. Then to meet the SDG and the Paris Agreement, the energy transition must embrace three drivers, decarbonisation, decentralisation and digitalisation. Included in this energy transition is delivering electricity to over a billion people that currently lack access and to do so over the course of the next 13 years. 20 countries in Africa and Asia represent 80% of that challenge. In these countries, domestic and international, public and private finance, uh, the commitments they're made, average just under half of the estimated needs in the period 2013 to 14. So that's 19.4 billion compared to 52 billion. This finance has targeted critical support for economic and industrial growth. However, only 6 billion of that has focused on connecting residential consumers. Nearly two-thirds of this finance was in India, the Philippines and Bangladesh. Eleven of the 20 highest impact countries, all of whom are in Africa, each saw less than a billion dollars of investment a year. Decentralised electricity systems could provide near-term low-cost electricity to millions of rural consumers, but face policy and regulatory uncertainty that constrains growth. 70% of Africa's least electrified nations, where access is below 20%, have barely begun to establish an enabling environment for access. Electrification plans that help define the boundaries between centralised systems and decentralised services are generally lacking. Now, countries in Asia with a strong policy framework, such as India and Bangladesh, have seen correspondingly high rates of electricity access. They do well across policies for grids, mini-grids and standalone systems, suggesting that these efforts are complementary. By 2030, the International Energy Agency suggests that on a business-as-usual basis, 89% of the 674 million people who will still be without access will be in Africa. Some countries, such as Kenya, have announced plans to close the electricity gap well ahead of 2030. It is possible to estimate the dividend in economic and development terms of achieving access to electricity as a priority. Benefits include significant savings in energy expenditures, as well as additional study time for, for children at home. With advances in dropping prices of distributed renewable technologies and with evidence of the benefits of connection, the question before countries with electricity access gaps and the international community is why wait for the grid to arrive? Electricity represents one part of the energy needs of those without access. Clean cooking represents a significant added challenge. Just over 3 billion people lack access to clean fuels for cooking. Under a business-as-usual projection, 2.3 billion people in Asia and Africa will remain without access by 2030. 
Current detectable financing flows for clean cooking are very low against an estimated need of just over four billion a year. Stronger emphasis is needed on creating big markets for clean fuels, in addition to investments in clean cooking technologies and funding for research and development. Use of traditional biomass, wood, charcoal, and animal dung is devastating to human health and a driver of deforestation. The WHO estimates that over 4 million people die prematurely from illness attributable to household air pollution from cooking with solid fuels every year. Transitioning to cleaner fuels, including ethanol, LPG, natural gas, will require long-term industry building. These comments have been primarily focused on challenges in securing universal energy access. The good news, gentlemen, is that advances in technology, financing and business models and a focus on demand-side efficiency in products and services mean that we can achieve the goal. However, it will require a shift in mindset from supporting centralised energy systems to more integrated systems with a greater share of renewables. The US has been engaged in these efforts for many years. Its continued engagement at a time of advances in technology and business models and with an international focus on sustainable development could reap real rewards. I'd be very happy to answer any questions you may have. Thank you. Well, thank you for your excellent testimony, Ms. Kite. And uh, I know each of us up here have a number of follow-up questions for you. Um, here today, as well as uh, at greater length in your written testimony, you discuss the importance of uh, the development of, of a strong policy framework, uh, creating a policy environment uh, that will facilitate uh, a greater rate of uptake of, of uh, um, uh, electricity solutions, uh, thus providing a higher rate of, of electricity access to citizens. Uh, India and Bangladesh, uh, you've cited as examples of countries that have uh, developed this strong policy framework. Could, could you discuss the importance of, of that relationship between the policy framework on one hand and, and electricity access on the other, and perhaps outline what a strong policy framework related to uh, electrification looks like? Thank you very much. I, I think perhaps then to 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 a Senate uh, subcommittee, it, it's important to say that policy does matter. Um, and what we see is where a strong policy environment is uh, put in place, um, speed and scale of improvement is, is possible. That's not to say that there aren't good things happening in many, many different countries, but the speed and scale relates to the policy environment. We've been able, um, through uh, pioneering work by the World Bank Group and others, to um, provide a sort of benchmarkable set of uh, indicators around the regulatory environment for energy efficiency, for um, increasing the uh, renew renewable uh, penetration in the mix, which is important for decarbonizing the electricity system, uh, and then also for policies which would lend themselves to speeding up access. When it comes to access, which, is the, the, which was the subject of my uh, briefing, you know, here what we, what we see is that the traditional regulatory environment, the traditional incentive is around the performance of the grid. And that needs to continue to be a focus of policy 
in terms of uh, the levels of subsidy, the kind of price, the reliability of the grid, etc. But when we're looking at closing the access gap, those countries that are moving towards supporting a more integrated system, which means allowing off-grid systems to operate alongside grid systems, as well as allowing for a more pl level playing field between energy sources, um, renewables as well as fossil fuel and other traditional sources, that in that circumstance, then we, we see a, a quicker uh, closing of the energy access gap. Um, some countries, the ones that we na name, have uh, also focused on the regulatory environment and what a rural electrification agency would look like, and I'm happy to submit perhaps uh, in writing more detail around that. Uh, but I, I think that we, we do see that where you put access as a priority, you understand that efficiency will drive productivity throughout the economy, and you wish to um, have a a more modern energy mix that policy for, that supports those initiatives is having an impact on closing the access gap more quickly. Thank you. Ms. Pike, uh, your prepared statement has also discussed uh, the uh, health effects uh, of using certain fuels, uh, specifically biomass, uh, for cooking. Uh, you said a World Health Organization report indicating that over 4 million people die prematurely every year from illness attributable to household air pollution from cooking with biomass and solid fuels, generally. Uh, in their statement that I entered into the record, the UN Development Program said that almost three billion people lack access to clean cooking fuel, depending on traditional biomass to meet their energy needs instead. Um, so, uh, first of all, to make sure I understand this correctly, um, I've absorbed it from your reading. Is bio biomass is preferable to some of these other more solid fuels, or, or biomass is one of the, uh, is, is one of the uh, fuels that leads to adverse health effects among the populations? So tradition is, it's, it's an excellent question, uh, Mr. Chairman. A traditional biomass so the burning of wood or charcoal or uh, cakes made from animal dung right. uh, or combination of those is highly detrimental to health. Um, it has heavy particulate matter. So that's all, all under the heading of biomass. What kind of specific R&D and innovation do we need to address this health and, and development issue? So the, uh, the R&D that's needed is over the Im improvement of the performance of cook stoves so that if you were to use some form of biomass, you would have much less emissions as a result of that. And there, there is a, a, a metrics for understanding how good they have to be in order to not have any health impact. Um, and, and then I think that uh, there is also work to be done on building out markets for LPG, ethanol and gas, as well as eventually solar induction stoves. But for those who are using biomass, the, we need more R&D into the actual performance of the stoves that, uh, that burn that. Ms. Kite, my, my time is, is running short here, and I want to make sure I pass it on to the ranking member. Before I do, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't reiterate that uh, Mr. Paul Mitchell from uh, Energy Systems Network uh, from my home state is testifying in the second panel. Uh, have you had an opportunity to read his written testimony? 
I have, I have, sir. Okay. Well, I, I, thank you for doing that. And it strikes me that uh, ESN has made some great progress on various projects that just might support your efforts at sustainable energy for all. Would you consider coming to Indiana and visiting with uh, Energy Systems Network? This wasn't a trap. <laughs> but but I, I, I'd be grateful for your strong consideration, ideally your, your public commitment here and now. <laughs> Mr. Chairman, it's an extremely kind and generous offer. I read with interest the testimony. Uh, we have a lot to talk about, and I'd be delighted to take you up on that offer. Thank you. Thank you. Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you very much. I so much appreciated um, your testimony and the work that you're engaged in, a very important role in the, in the world. And you mentioned policy and regulatory uncertainty. And one of the things that I have heard often is simply the access to lower interest financing is a significant hurdle. For example, at one point in a conversation with the power minister in India, he was relaying, and this is now outdated, but that he wanted to reach two-thirds of the 300 million folks in India without electricity uh, with um, uh, coal-powered uh, uh, plants and a third with renewable. And I asked what was driving the separation between those two. He said it was the very high interest rate on the renewable energy projects, which I think he pegged at about 15 percent. Uh, what kind of work are we seeing in the international community to provide affordable financing for renewable energy electricity? Thank you, uh, Senator Merkley, for the question. Um, there are many, many, many layers to a, to a full answer to that. Uh, but I, I think that um, increasingly countries are addressing the investment climate and to make sure that there is a, a consistency in the way in which they um, both set the regulatory uh, environment but also then uh, encourage effective pricing and uh, encourage state-owned banks in the case of India but as well as commercial banks and other lenders to be able to be part of the energy transition. Uh, since since the quote that you gave me, I India has been able to um, auction uh, for for power, uh, grid connected solar power, at uh, at very very competitive prices, and now believes that solar power um, is cheaper than coal without subsidy. Um, and so the question really for India is the exposure of their state owned banks to uh, to the coal sector as well as uh, to to stimulate uh, both commercial and state-owned banks and international investors into their renewable industry. What we see in, in smaller projects around the world, in, in, in particular in Africa, is the lack of availability to well-priced long-term debt um, and uh, perhaps a lack of awareness within the banking sector in, in some of the developing countries around the future for off-grid renewable energy. And that's something that a number of development partners are starting to address. Yes, I was really uh, struck by just the transition uh, in this single year uh, between April and June, driven, I think, by decisions in, in India related to that dropping price. Was that about three cents per kilowatt yep. in those auctions? Yes. Uh, we wouldn't mind having more of that in uh, in Oregon. Yep. 
Yeah, happy to provide the detail on that. Yeah, uh, thank you. That would be very uh, helpful. And uh, part of your presentation was labeled dropping prices, why wait for the grid? And this, I, I think that part was about prices dropping in microgrid technology, uh, which I've seen everything from the household panel to the uh, small village uh, uh, system. But what are, you, what are you seeing evolve between uh, the marketplace and those settings that are far from uh, grid connections? Thank you. Well, Senator, what, what I think the, the, the best figure comes from uh, Bloomberg New Energy Finance and, and, and the, uh, the, 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 the framing that they give is that the price of solar PV has um, fallen by more than 70% in just uh, a few years. And the price of storage is also falling. And so what this means, uh, and, and then you have, therefore, uh, a market of products and services that can work off that solar PV. And so what you now have is the opportunity to introduce technology in standalone or solar home systems or in microgrids and minigrids at a reasonable price um, uh, into uh, remote rural communities as well as into the peri-urban communities of cities. That doesn't mean to say um, that uh, that it's it's easy to get the financing for these kinds of product projects, but the actual price of the the hardware has meant that uh, all kinds of business models are now evolving around uh, the provision of those kinds of services. And so, rather than a few, just even five years ago, when this goal seemed to be extremely aspirational, it now seems to be one that if we can align the finance with the right policy environment and with the entrepreneurs and the backing that they need, that this is actually achievable. One thing that I, I saw was a very innovative strategy where individuals, instead of buying the system, they buy time on the system. And then when that time runs out, they can go buy more time. But in, meanwhile, they may have been able to sell enough electricity to other individuals for, their tele, for small televisions or for cell phones, et cetera, to have made that. That seems to have tackled both the, the challenge of theft, because you can't operate it with, without, yeah. without the code, and a, a more affordable uh, financing direction. I just want to, I'll close by mentioning that, that for some reason, Cottage Grove, Oregon, has become a center for efficient wood stoves uh, to developing countries around the world. One company, InStove, specializing mm -hmm. in uh, institutional cooking stoves, and another, Aprovechal Research Center, specializing uh, in uh, family-based cooking. And they both have designed these stoves so that they squeeze every last uh, ounce of energy out of the combustion of wood. But even if it's done indoors, which it generally isn't, uh, the, um, uh, they burn so efficiently that they have far less byproducts in terms of uh, indoor uh, potential pollution. But they, those, have, those Oregon stoves are now all around the world, mm -hmm. and I'm uh, very happy to see that development. Well, Ms. Kite, um, I, I appreciate your answers to those questions. Uh, we've been joined by Senator Barrasso, uh, a valued member of the subcommittee, and uh, Ms. 
uh, would you like to ask some questions? Yeah, uh, th thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate you being here. I serve on both the Energy Committee as well as the Environment and Public Works Committee. I'm very interested in this and uh, was here to hear your entire testimony. I appreciate it. had a chance to review the written testimony as well. Uh, last year in the Environment and Public Works Committee, we had uh, the president of the Center for uh, Industrial Progress, uh, Mr. Alex Epstein, come, and he's written a book about uh, the moral case for fossil fuels. And, you know, he, he states that you, you can't be a humanitarian and condemn the energy humanity needs, that climate-related deaths are way down, including in underdeveloped countries, that our technologies and our wealth have given poorer countries better, cheaper, everything, materials for building buildings, medicine, food for drought relief. He goes on, the scientific and medical discoveries that we have made in the time that, we, that has been bought with fossil fuel-powered labor-saving machines benefit everyone around the world, and that to oppose fossil fuels, he says, is ultimately to oppose the underdeveloped world. Now, uh, I believe, Ms. Kite, that the uh, United States should be working with countries to promote an all-of-the-above energy strategy. Uh, the United States policy should focus on making it easier and more affordable for these nations to achieve access to electricity, not harder and not more expensive. And, and it appears that the United Nations uh, affiliated organization and multilateral institutions are placing restrictions and prohibitions uh, on the use of traditional energy sources such as coal and oil and natural gas. So, so I ask if you could describe the programs at the, at the United Nations which actually support traditional energy resource development as a way to help underdeveloped nations grow their way out of poverty and improve the quality of life of the people who live there. Senator Barrasso, thank you so much for your, um, uh, for your question and for your uh, long-held uh, long commitment to this issue. Thank you. So uh, as international organizations, uh, we are uh, guided by the decisions of our member states. And so, for the first time, I think, after many decades of, of discussion, um, the, the agreement in 2015, which was uh, unanimous, and then the almost unanimous agreement in the Paris Climate Agreement, uh, really frames the energy issue around reliability, affordability, um, and uh, access to modern energy services. And there is a need to... Um, uh, to to uh, change the mix of those energy services if, um, if we are mindful of uh, the concerns around uh, the impact uh, that warming of the climate is producing. But on reliability and affordability, mo most member states of the United Nations, so most countries in the world, are struggling with um, how to produce that. And that means that we have a, a responsibility to look at the um, effective management of an energy service, uh, which will provide services for everybody. That means shifting perhaps to uh, more resilient energy systems that use uh, off-grid and grid. It means um, uh, modernizing the grid using digital technology. And it uh, means being much more productive with the use of energy now. And I think there's a real revolution there and something that the United States has led on in the past. And it means um, counting in the cost of the impact of poor air quality. And this is what's driving most countries. So whether it's China or India or you know, my, the capital city of my home state, so London and the United Kingdom, or whether it's Lagos in Nigeria, what's driving policy 
is the need for clean air because that's going to that's going to attract competitive companies that's going to protect children and future generations and so i think that uh, what we're seeing is a uh, drop in price of renewables because of technological advance and we're also seeing uh, a, a choice that people want to make if they can if it can be affordable and reliable towards cleaner energy sources because they can't afford to have choked cities and an economic development that's being slowed for that reason so I, I think that the, the kinds of requests we're getting um, from uh, member states are about help us with a transition for reliable affordable and cleaner energy because we don't see a pathway to sustained economic growth if we have the kind of air quality that we are beginning to experience now. It just seemed I was thinking of some of my trips to Africa and being in some of the, the, the townships in South, South Africa and some of the areas where you know, there's people desperately looking for any sort of energy and, and you know, the, the cell phone has done remarkable information in terms of helping with Absolutely. making sure people were taking the HIV medication, helping with the Mothers to Mothers program. But the, the, the problem that they're dealing with is, uh, seems to be a lack of any energy, as we've heard the testimony of the, the billion people around the world. So, I mean, my, my concerns in terms of restrictions that are being placed on, on funding and things is that, you know, instead of regulating and placing impossible restrictions on um, underdeveloped energy sectors of developing nations, uh, we should be encouraging growth so that these countries can compete in the international marketplace, create jobs, alleviate poverty. The, uh, there are so many things that we can do, and it just seems to be the, that we want to all make energy as clean as we can, as fast as we can, but in ways that make this energy available, and if there are resources that can do it now, um, I think it's hard when we put additional restrictions and limit the kinds of energy that they can use, because being, as you talked about, the dung uh, that is burned, uh, compared to what we have and have used to uh, advantage this nation, that we ought to be able to have that used elsewhere as well. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. My time has expired. Well, uh, thank you, Senator. I, I appreciate you bringing that important component uh, to this overall conversation. I think that definitely needs to factor into uh, our policymaking as well. So um, thank you, Ms. Kite, once again for your testimony here today. Um, this conclude, concludes the first panel, and uh, we're going to take a few minutes for the second panel's witnesses to get situated. Thanks for being here. Yeah. Just in case you need help, I'm sure you don't. But Juwatalaki. I will need help. Maybe I have questions somewhere else. Yeah. <laughs> Well, everyone looks situated, and we're running against the clock, so I, I thought we would uh, proceed.
call back into order uh, this subcommittee, and I'd like to welcome again um, Dr. Todd Moss, Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development and at Rice University's Baker Institute, uh, Mr. Joao Talaki, Program Director at the Purpose Climate Lab, and Mr. Paul Mitchell, President and CEO of Energy Systems Network. Your full written statements will be entered into the record. I welcome you to summarize your statement uh, in about five minutes or less, please. Uh, let's go in the order I welcome you. Dr. Moss, your testimony, please. Great, thank you, Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, and other members of the subcommittee. Uh, I proudly served at, in the State Department under Secretary Condoleezza Rice uh, and continue to work closely on U.S. energy and development policies uh, at, the, at the nonpartisan Center for Global Development and at, at Rice University. I have three brief points today, and I'll conclude with three brief recommendations. Uh, point number one, helping our allies build modern energy systems directly serves U.S. economic, national security, diplomatic, and development interests. Energy statecraft is a valuable lever for transforming our relationships with emerging nations and promoting the full array of U.S. interests around the world, especially in Africa, an increasingly important region. And Africa's ambitions are not just for lights and phone chargers, but for the modern energy infrastructure that every country needs to benefit from the global economy and to create jobs for their growing populations. Our own country's experience shows that mass electrification can be catalytic for reducing poverty while generating growth and prosperity. Africa is vastly underpowered today. My refrigerator uses more electricity uh, than nine people in Ethiopia. Uh, and these gaps are only going to widen as people grow richer and their energy demands expand. Now for the United States, the, the, economic, the potential economic upside is tremendous. Closing Africa's power gap would help to unleash the massive consumer and investment potential of a continent that is already home to more than a billion people and is bursting with creative and entrepreneurial talent. Conversely, the security downside of failure is frightening. There is simply no scenario where Africa is stable and thriving without a dramatic expansion of the power sector. And electricity will be one of the driving determinants whether the continent becomes a source of economic dynamism or a source of dangerous security threats. A prime example here is Nigeria. Africa's largest economy could be a major destination for U.S. investment and a robust engine for global growth. Nigeria is also a critical U.S. partner in our fight against nearly every transnational threat we face, such as terrorism, criminal networks, and disease. Now, sometime in the next 25 years, Nigeria's population will be larger than ours. Yet while we have about 1,000 gigawatts of electricity generation capacity, Nigeria today has about four. If we help Nigeria build a modern energy system, we will help a critical ally generate and generate opportunities for American companies. If we ignore Nigeria's energy future, either China fills the vacuum or Nigeria fails and becomes a hotbed of dangerous threats. Point number two, Power Africa has made an extremely promising start. So far, Power Africa is right on track to meet its goals of 30 gigawatts of new generation capacity and 60 million new connections. To be very clear, Power Africa is not using U.S. taxpayer funds to build power plants in foreign countries. 
It is instead deploying technical advisors and other tools to unlock the potential of the private sector. A core component of Power Africa is the Overseas Private Investment Corporation. Now, OPIC makes commercial loans to specific high-value projects where private, cap, uh, private credit is unavailable. This does not cost U.S. taxpayers as OPIC is profitable and returns money into the U.S. Treasury every year. So Power Africa is succeeding, but it must be sustained, and it could be even better at little to no additional cost. Point three is that in energy, big is still beautiful. Small-scale distributed power systems are definitely going to reach many, many poor people, uh, but African economies will still require large-scale power plants and a modern grid. If you are poor and live today without any electricity, then getting a solar lantern or a small home system is a, it's a, it's a remarkable step up. However, three caveats to this. One is that small home systems are really just the very first step on a long energy ladder. The global definition of rural modern energy access is just 50 kilowatt hours per person per year. This is what an average American consumes in about a day and a half. It's barely enough to power light bulbs or charge a cell phone. And 50 kilowatt hours is not an end goal. It is just a very, very first step. And it's really kind of uh, crazy to call this uh, modern energy access. Second caveat is that electricity for development is not just about reaching homes. Reaching homes is important, but it's also about powering industry and commerce. No matter how many lanterns are delivered, Africa's growing cities and industrial zones will require large-scale power for job creation and economic growth. And the third point is that, America, uh, is that all of the above, which we, we heard Senator Barrasso mention, is not just an American approach. Every country exploits its own endowments to meet the energy needs of its people. Yes, solar, wind, geothermal, and hydro will all play a, an important role in Africa's future energy mix. Yet natural gas will be part of the solution too. In Ghana, Nigeria, Kenya, Tanzania, Mozambique, Cote d'Ivoire, Senegal, and others, it is simply untenable to expect these countries to produce natural gas and export all of it to Asia uh, and Europe while their people still need power. Now we can either help these allies build smart infrastructure with modern American technology, or we can cede this space to others. Let me conclude briefly with three ways to make Power Africa even more effective in supporting US interests and how Congress can help. One, Congress should insist that the administration continue Power Africa and fulfill the goals of the bipartisan Electrify Africa Act. Two, the, modern, uh, the, the very modest Power Africa team based at USAID must be fully funded. Their valuable work paves the way for private investment. And three, Congress should work with the administration to turn OPIC into the US Development Finance Corporation, a full service development finance institution worthy of the United States and built for the energy statecraft of the 21st century. Thank, Thank you, you, Dr. Moss. Mr. Talaki. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, members of the committee, thank you for inviting me to testify on the important issue of energy access in emerging economies. I was once in a community in the Amazon that wasn't connected to the grid when the diesel generator was turned on. Putting aside the less than optimal way the diesel was stored and handled, I was struck by one thing, and that was the noise. I asked a villager if it bothered him, and his answer was, a little, but the worst part is we can't hear the snakes. As it happened, a kid had been bitten uh, a few weeks before. 
Senators, providing energy access to the 1.2 billion people around the world that lack access to electricity is a fundamental step to improve their social and economic conditions and that of their countries. But to do so, we need to focus on the best solutions, those are the fast to deploy, affordable, safe, and effective. To address this need, policymakers face two distinct options that are complementary, though. Extend the infrastructure of a centralized electricity grid or provide local renewable energy solutions. To date, the primary approach to solve this problem has been to increase grid connectivity. But progress has been slow, and the number of underserved households is expected to decline by only a few percentage points over the next few years. The problem is that it makes little economic sense to extend and maintain the grid for long distances over rivers and across mountains with costs at the tens of thousands of dollars per mile just to sell underpriced electricity to a few houses. Utilities frown at this. Even if the grids reach these remote places, the utilities need to wait for subsidies that are slow to come. Or they need to spend money to send people to collect money from villagers that either can't or don't want to pay because the electricity services are poor and power cuts are constant. As populations grow, this all-or-nothing grid-based approach will continue to leave millions in the dark. Decentralized renewable energy systems, especially those with storage capacity, are a much smarter solution. These technologies like solar, wind, hydro, and biomass can operate in multiple configurations, from simple individual or home systems to more complex local mini-grids or even as complement to regional grids. They can work for a few hours or provide 24-7 power. Renewable energy technologies are independent and resilient, relying on locally available and usually free fuels, the sun, wind, and water, and don't depend on supply chains or power lines that cost a lot and can be disrupted by various factors, as conflict or natural disasters. Just think about Puerto Rico. But some will say many governments tried to install solar powers before and those experiments failed. I myself have seen many solar panels from the 80s serving as doors to chicken coops in remote communities. The technology is not to blame. The problem was the approach. Public agencies tried to install the systems and they just left. The first time something went wrong and no one came back to fix it, that was the end of it. Many governments are learning that lesson and instead of doing it themselves, are working to create enabling environments for small and medium local enterprises. These enterprises can build deep rural distribution networks for renewable energy solutions, as well as customers' trust. Because their returns depend on either products working well or the sale of electricity, they are bound to offer guarantees after sales support and perform repairs. Decentralized renewable energy for energy access needs to be a business. This is already starting to happen. Because renewable energy solutions are scalable, it's possible to reach communities in weeks instead of years, and to do that in economical terms, offering enough power at a price that can be afforded and that make business sense for all involved. This is a shift from the all-or-nothing approach based on grid connections. It creates a new model based on entry-level power and the concept of an energy ladder. Communities can use their new sources of energy to keep small businesses open a bit later, they can store products in refrigerators and access communication and banking services. Decentralized renewable solutions are being used for irrigation with solar water pumps, 
and also grinding, milling, husking, drying, smoking, spelling oils, powering tools, and so on. These are all economic activities that provide income. I've met a woodworker in the Amazon who tripled his output just because he had access to energy. In turn, people can afford more electricity and energy systems can be scaled up. Beyond making existing jobs more efficient, renewable energy solutions create local permanent jobs for maintenance, payment collection, and after-sales support, just as examples. Energy access for rural communities strengthen local economies and job creations. It is a win-win-win for all. This is, this is a new space, and sharp reductions in the cost of generation storage technologies are helping it grow quickly. The United States can play an important role in supporting it through technology, innovation, and finance. We can continue to wait decades for the grid to reach these 1.2 billion people. But the smarter option is to create the conditions for markets to deliver energy access through decentralized renewable energy, which can happen in a much shorter term. The benefits of jobs, resiliency, reduced air and water pollution, avoided climate change emissions, increased school performance, and new opportunities for social and economic development cannot be ignored or delayed. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Talaki. Mr. Mitchell. Chairman Young, Ranking Member Merkley, thank you for the opportunity to appear before your subcommittee today to testify and update you on the many energy technology innovations that are taking place in the great state of Indiana and how they are directly applicable to international development. We have been able to achieve significant innovations as a result of our collaboration with industry, academia, and government institutions. We have facilitated many successful public-private partnership ventures, and I am proud of the role that ESN has played in making this possible. Energy Systems Network, or ESN, is an Indiana-based nonprofit consortium working to build an energy ecosystem that integrates all aspects of the energy landscape, from generation and distribution to transportation and infrastructure. Founded in 2009 by a group of leading energy and transportation CEOs, and with strong support from then-Governor of Indiana, Mitch Daniels, ESN's mission is to leverage our network to develop integrated energy solutions that increase quality of life for today and tomorrow. Our collective focus is to reduce costs, emissions, and waste, influence policy, and advance technological innovation. To date, the public-private partnerships we have led have resulted in an investment of more than $700 million in the state of Indiana. ESN projects have brought together dozens of global and Fortune 500 companies, numerous startups and scale-up firms, leading research universities, and federal labs with a common purpose to accelerate the pace of energy technology innovation and adoption using the state of Indiana as a launching pad for solutions that will benefit the world. Let me give you just a few examples of some of our successes. The development of Blue Indy, the largest electric car sharing system in North America with more than 300 electric vehicles and 500 charging stations across the city of Indianapolis, offering low-cost sustainable transportation to thousands of Hoosiers. The founding of Battery Innovation Center, a $20 million world-class energy storage research, testing, and prototype manufacturing lab in rural Greene County, Indiana, just outside of Naval Surface Warfare Center Crane. Building a first-of-its-kind mobile microgrid in 2010, powered by renewable biomass and solar energy, capable of supplying forward remote operating bases with a sustainable energy supply using their own waste. 
or partnering most recently with the Indiana Housing and Community Development Authority to build six net zero affordable housing developments with integrated transportation options for residents. One of our founding principles is that no one company or institution has all the tools to solve our energy challenges. Solutions require a collaborative approach that cuts across traditional industry boundaries. Solutions require us to work together with a range of corporate, academic, and government partners. This type of approach to address the many challenges associated with international development also works perfectly. It is the power of public-private partnerships and the collaboration that drives them which is best able to solve the complex and varied challenges of energy and international development. While ESN is based in Indiana, we ensure that our projects are scalable well beyond the Hoosier State. In order to drive scalability, we partner with companies that are working around the world and we reach out to nations to find ways for our best practices to be adopted abroad. ESN has formed partnerships with companies and institutions with countries, most notably Japan, China, France, We've also worked to do outreach in less developed nations like the Republic of Georgia. ESN's engagement around the world has taught us that energy solutions are truly global in nature. We've learned that sustainable and cost-effective and environmentally responsible energy solutions that we have helped deliver to Hoosiers can work in other countries too, including those, as we've heard about, that are struggling to develop modern energy infrastructure and supply. For example, the increased adoption of distributed energy resources, which includes, of course, renewables, but also small-scale fossil fuel plants, which are often coupled with energy storage, offer a revolutionary new approach to scaling the modern energy supply. Or the rapidly increasing adoption of transportation electrification, which can trace its roots back to the state of Indiana, where General Motors developed the first modern electric vehicle in the late 1990s. Today, electric vehicles are becoming commonplace, in nearly every major manufacturer of light-duty passenger cars to heavy-duty trucks and buses are rolling out electric products. ESN, with our many partners, are playing an important role in facilitating these dynamics. We are leveraging Indiana as a proving ground for the innovative technologies, business models, and regulatory policies that will support this transformation. Our more than half a billion dollars in successful public-private partnerships are proof that collaboration is working and the ability to share these best practices with other nations is a logical step for ESN and one that our partners are eager to pursue with the support of this committee. Thank you, Chairman Young and Ranking Member Merkley. I, again, uh, welcome this opportunity to update you on what ESN has done at the intersection of energy and international development and look forward to answering any questions you may have. Well, thank you, Mr. Mitchell, and uh, thank you again to each of you for your insightful comments. Before we proceed to questions, I'd like to address uh, one administrative item. Andrew Herskowitz, the Power Africa Coordinator for USAID, as well as Joe Scheuer, uh, Director with the United Nations Development Program Bureau for Policy and Program Support, have uh, submitted written statements to this subcommittee. With unanimous consent, I'd like to include them both in the record. <laughs> Dr. Moss, in your testimony, you state that the, quote, fracking revolution and rise of natural gas has dramatically changed the geopolitical balance, unquote. Can you describe in more detail these broad developments, uh, what their significance are, and most importantly, how U.S. policy should address them? Yeah, I think, you know, if we think about the intersection of, of, uh, of energy and U.S. foreign policy, 
a lot of people are still stuck in the Carter Doctrine era where we just think about oil resources, making sure that the oil can flow and it kind of stops there. Um, but today we're looking at an incredibly dynamic global energy marketplace um, where the role of the United States is both a supplier and buyer. And in developing countries, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, um, energy is such a, in high demand, both economically and diplomatically, uh, that this is a new lever for the United States to help build alliances, to help support our partners, and to help uh, our allies become more capable to deal with a whole panoply of, uh, of issues. You know, Power Africa was not cooked up in the basement of some government building. Power Africa came out of a long series of consultations with African allies where they said, we really want American partnership uh, in the power sector. Uh, and that's what I mean. It's a, it's a new global energy uh, statecraft where helping countries build energy systems is in our interest. Uh, Mr. Mitchell, uh, Indiana has such a, a, a fine history of, of innovation. You spoke to some of the things we've done uh, in the energy uh, and transportation space. What do you see as the most promising R&D and innovation initiatives uh, in the energy field right now? Um, and what role is ESN playing in some of those cutting edge uh, areas? You know, there's such a rich diversity of R&D and tech transfer going on, it's hard to speak to that in, in a, a short period of time. But let me talk about two areas where I see a lot of interest in investment. Uh, the first one is energy storage, and we've heard about that quite a bit today, I think, from each of the speakers. Um, the energy and transportation industries have been looking for a low-cost, scalable way to store electricity for decades. Uh, and it seems we're finally reaching the tipping point where the family of lithium-ion battery technology could provide a viable solution. Uh, costs are coming down at rates uh, once thought impossible, but it's still an expensive technology and it has a ways to go. Um, in Indiana, we invested in, in, in launching something called the Battery Innovation Center that I, that I spoke to earlier. And this lab really brings together industry, academia, and, and government institutions. And we're working with 65 companies from big corporations like GE and Duke Energy and Rolls-Royce to promising startups like Brightvolt and Synode. And what we're seeing is a, a number of game-changing innovations in the energy storage space from the coupling of batteries into really large grid storage systems that would look like a, a large data center, all the way down to taking nanomaterials and putting them on a, a small flexible battery that fits into uh, a medical device. Um, within the very near term, battery technology is going to be so ubiquitous, you're going to see it on virtually, if you're not already, seeing it on every car, every airplane, every internet-connected device, every drone, and every good system around the world. So this is a really important area of innovation. Are there things we should be doing, uh, from your vantage point uh, here at the federal level, uh, to, to scale up some of these existing technologies, to catalyze new ones, um, especially as it relates to our international development efforts? If, yes, I mean, I think one of the the issues we have is, is that uh, we certainly don't want to give up the battery industry to Asia. Um, China is investing huge sums in building a number of large factories called gigafactories for, for battery technology, and I think there needs to be a concerted effort in the U.S. to make sure that U.S. innovation continues to play a leadership role in that space. 
Um, I think another area where uh, we need to play a bigger role is, is something some of the previous panelists spoke to in terms of uh, our innovation in unconventional oil and gas production. Uh, we've unleashed an amazing uh, uh, innovation in that type of fracking and that type of uh, production. We're now producing volumes at prices and in locations once thought impossible of oil, gas, and, and uh, non-liquid gases. And I think we've got to help other countries in unlocking that same potential uh, in their markets and to use exports of oil and gas as a tool uh, for U.S. Uh, interests around the world. Senator Merkley. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, all of you brought different perspectives to bear and expertise. Much appreciated. Uh, Mr. Talaki, uh, as you talked about the variety of ways you can address the challenge of, of energy with, with uh, microgrids, and you, you mentioned uh, things such as irrigation, milling, drying, smoking, anyway, small-scale, um, I don't know if quite call it manufacturing, but small-scale energy applications. Can those be achieved? with village-level grids? Thank you for the question, Senator. Um, some of those uh, technologies are already nascently connected to the uh, power generation, as, for example, solar water pumps. Uh, with uh, village-scale grids, it will all depend on the scale of the grid. So it depends on where you are on the energy ladder and the capacity of both the company that is there to make the initial investment, but also the capacity of the villagers to, to pay for that electricity. So um, some of that can be uh, definitely achieved with the technology. It is there. Uh, it just needs to be built in the right size for let, those activities. Let, let me reframe the question a little bit. I've seen in uh, villages in a variety of places a fairly quick adoption of small solar panels that provide enough energy for communications, including very low energy television screens, uh, cell, cell phones, uh, LED lights to, especially to study by or to cook by at, at night. But I, I haven't seen much adoption uh, for kind of day-to-day -day tasks done in the village in terms of husking, drying, uh, grinding, milling, and, and so forth. Uh, are you starting to see that now in, in your broader exposure to what's going on? Yes. So uh, I've seen, and I was part of that in the Amazon, uh, when we installed grids there and we supported the supply chains of fish uh, with refrigerators. So that was a big step so people could store fish, keep it there, and only transport it back to, to markets uh, when, uh, when they had better uh, opportunities or volumes. Uh, in India... Uh, these opportunities of husking, for example, is happening with support of biomass. So you, you have microgrids that are built using not necessarily only solar technology, but hydro and biomass, and that then can be scaled to uh, support activities, and it's a win-win because you have the uh, fuel right there. So one of the things that I've, I've often heard as a critique of distributed solar uh, is that you can't essentially enable there to be manufacturing activities. And I think that's, that's a fair, large energy demands, especially ones that require a lot of heat. But in an economy, normally those are done in centralized urban areas anyway because of the networks of transportation. So you don't really put a, a factory that takes, even, even if you have electricity, you don't put it in a, in a village far out somewhere. Uh, the, um, uh, 
but you mentioned that there is uh, another advantage, which is the uh, uh, eliminating power line disruption. And it took me back to a, a situation in West Africa uh, that um, where power lines would go up and then they would disappear because of copper theft. Uh, is, that still, is that still a problem with uh, the effort to expand grids? Um, I don't know if power theft of the power lines are a problem. I know that uh, in Brazil uh, we've seen a lot of politicians promise access to uh, energy uh, during campaigns, and if elected they would sometimes bring the light poles, and then nothing would happen. And then in four years later uh, they would run again, and maybe the cables would be connected, but not necessarily the electricity. So, so the grid was kind of a choke point uh, that was used um, and not to supply electricity, but uh, to achieve votes. And you mentioned uh, in your written statement uh, how the sociology changes as people become used to what's possible. And for example, and maybe it was the Amazon community you referred to, where women started buying hair dryers and that proved incompatible and had to drive a, a community discussion. Yeah, so uh, in one of the systems we installed, um, we quickly realized that because, of course, you're dealing with limited supply of, electri supply of electricity, um, you needed people to uh, be responsible with the amount of electricity that they would use. So yes, some of the women in the village got uh, hair straighteners or uh, blow dryers, and those systems made the solar grid shut down. Uh, that was sorted with a community meeting, but now uh, smarter grids, remote controlled uh, grids, and uh, pay-as-you-go systems would probably solve that through the technology side. Wind can also produce very low cost energy, but you tend to see a lot more of solar. Why is that? Sorry? Can you Wind can also produce uh, very low cost energy, but in terms of microgrids, I think at least what I've seen is a lot more solar. Why is that? Yes, uh, wind, uh, I think it's one, there's less data on the availability of wind in remote communities you need to measure, and uh, the initial capital investment for a wind turbine is higher than for solar, uh, and also it's much more complicated to fix and repair, and there are not enough suppliers in the market that can offer that technology. Great, thank you. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Senator Merkley. Dr. Moss? Uh, would you like to reply to um, Senator Merkley's line of questioning, please? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I think the hairdryer example is is pretty telling in that we're talking about very often, in many cases, very, very low power systems where you have to have a village meeting to coordinate who's going to use a hairdryer when means, you know, this is something that we absolutely take for granted in the United States. Um, and I think it's, it's worth thinking a little bit about the scale of power we're talking about. So there literally are, n there's no such thing in the world as a rich country that's a low power economy. There just does, it doesn't exist. Uh, in the United States, we use about 13,000 kilowatt hours per person. Nigeria is at 150. So the, the gaps are so tremendous 
um, that um, we really need, you know, all of the above is usually used in the context of fuels mix. It's also in terms of delivery systems. So absolutely rural isolated communities should not have to wait for the grid. They're absolutely going to use decentralized systems. And those systems are getting better and cheaper every day. And it's actually a super exciting time to be working in the energy field. But we're still, you know, the, the big cities, the big industrial zones are, I don't think in our lifetime, going to be running on, on, on small systems. So we're going to need all of the above uh, in every way possible. Is, is, is this why you make the point that uh, many countries are still going to need to use their own natural gas as part of their energy mix moving forward and that, and that we um, have an interest in helping those countries, a point uh, Mr. Mitchell made, exploit uh, their natural resources. Absolutely. I mean, many of the countries that had the greatest unmet power needs are producing natural gas. Um, and it is, it is really a question, and there's no question whether they're going to produce it or not. It's a question of whether they're going to export all of it to richer markets or whether a small portion of it will be used for power generation at home. And that's where, where initiatives like Power Africa can be very helpful because you've got to deal with a lot of policy issues around the grid, around the utilities, around the pricing structure to get a complicated power deal in place. Well, how can we improve that? I, you indicated uh, that there's some improvements uh, that could be made over at OPIC. Uh, in fact, you said that we could easily do two or three times the volume of power deals in Africa. That'd be a lot more deals. Uh, but uh, Congress is going to have to take some specific steps. What are those steps? Well, with OPIC specifically, you know, OPIC is a very high-performing agency that's, that was built in the Nixon administration, and it's still living with rules from the Nixon administration. So there are things like multi-year authorization, the ability to, uh, the authority to take equity positions, which is very important in certain kinds of deals, the ability to just invest in its own teams, to have enough staff to handle uh, the deals, and a number of other ways that would not cost uh, American taxpayers money. Ideally, a supersized OPIC would actually even generate greater profits uh, and save taxpayers uh, even more. Um, so that, that's, that's really the, uh, the, the crux of, of, of turning OPIC into a, into a bigger, better institution. Thank you. Mr. Mitchell, uh, ESN has been involved in a, a number of public-private partnerships with respect to energy and transportation. You have some sense of when those public-private partnerships make sense and, and, and when they don't. Tell me, I, in, in what instances uh, should government play a large role? Uh, when should the private sector play, play a larger role? Uh, and, and, and when is there an opportunity for a blending? If, if you can give me some general rules uh, of uh, some, some, some rules to go on in this area. Public-private partnerships are really at the, the center of what we do at, at Energy Systems Network, and, and so we've got a lot of experience in this area. Um, what I would say is that in almost every instance, successful public-private partnerships are industry-led and involve a, are driven by industry funding. I think if you look at the, the Power Africa experience and the ability to leverage a lot of private capital, um, that's going to be the fastest way to succeed. You absolutely need a joint uh, partnership and collaboration between government and industry. But if you can't get industry to the table, if you can't get them to risk their own capital and to put money into projects, 
The challenge is when that, that public money starts to dry up or the priorities move somewhere else, uh, the projects kind of end. We heard about that um, earlier where maybe some solar panels were put in but then you know, never, never fully uh, exploited. And so you've got to find ways to bring uh, private innovation and private capital to the table. And I actually think one of the things that's holding that back is a lack of awareness. Um, in my experience, a lot of the companies that are doing the most innovative things in Indiana or the United States are small to medium-sized businesses. And many of those companies view uh, international development projects as something that's reserved for the large multinational corporations or large global NGOs, when the reality is if we could find ways to connect and learn more about what's going on in, in the Hoosier state, but also other states, uh, and connect those to business partners overseas, some of these development goals are going to happen on their own. Are there specific steps uh, that we as policymakers can take, uh, to your mind, so that U.S. companies can compete more successfully for U.S. government projects, for multilateral development projects, uh, or, or uh, other contracts that are out there? So one step, it seems simple enough, but it's maybe one of the most important, is awareness. It is, it is finding a way to get the USAIDs, the Millennium Challenge Corporations, the OPICs and others out into the states interacting with organizations like mine, Energy Systems Network and others. So we're even aware that these programs are, are available because again, I think a lot of companies in the US think of this as something that's happening somewhere else that isn't, you know, that they don't have available to them. So outreach and engagement. Uh, the other thing I would say that, that would be important is a lot of more business to business partnerships that are driven between states or regions uh, and provinces or communities overseas. So not necessarily nation state to nation state, but we've seen a lot of successful partnerships come from sister city relationships between Indianapolis or Indiana and uh, communities overseas. Thank you, Mr. Mitchell. Senator Merkley. Thank you, Mr. Mitchell. You uh, talked both about renewable but also about oil and gas development. And one of the, the, uh, the circumstances we face is that uh, the level of carbon pollution driving climate disruption has risen substantially, and the rate of pollution has increased almost threefold between 1960 and now. That is, we're polluting the air at a three times faster rate now than we were decades ago. And we're seeing the impact in many ways. Of the, the point was brought home to us most dramatically by the energy contained in the recent set of, of hurricanes. And while it's often noted that any single hurricane, it's hard to attribute directly to the uh, warming of the ocean. The warming ocean does, in most cases, most scientists would acknowledge, creates greater power in a, in a hurricane, greater punch. Uh, and we were hit pretty hard. As you wrestle with advocating for energy systems around the world, and this and, you, and, and, we, and we have this particular uh, global challenge. How do you weigh that in your decision on how we should proceed? Let me say that every project that we've led at ESN has had a net positive impact on reducing carbon emissions. But those haven't been the, the primary driver or the primary goal of the project itself. The primary goal has always been technology innovation. And I think one of the things that I'm glad you're asking me this question because one of the things I th think that we need to recognize is that the phenomenon of distributed energy resources, which is a term we've heard a lot today, 
is not limited to renewables. In the United States and specifically in Indiana, what distributed energy resources means is having the generation closer to the demand source. And so that includes, of course, renewables and things like energy storage to help balance those renewables. But it also includes, in many cases, distributed fossil generation plants, usually smaller scale natural gas combined cycle plants that are far more efficient, have a much lower CO2 impact than, say, large baseload coal plants uh, of the past. Uh, and I really think that if you're going to achieve this combination of energy access but also abundance, which is necessary for economic growth, serious long-term economic growth, you have to blend distributed energy in the form of renewables with uh, combined cycle natural gas, usually smaller scale uh, systems, and this new phenomenon of energy storage. That trifecta gives you the reliable power source that you need that's also scalable to support the kinds of economic development growth opportunities that can allow a, uh, a manufacturing site to be in a rural, more rural location. And Mr. Talaki, we've, we've seen the impact on economic development in some cases uh, flowing from carbon pollution, uh, both in terms of fisheries, uh, droughts affecting farming, hurricanes uh, destroying uh, significant areas. Uh, as you ponder our energy choices, what, how, do you, how do you weigh into your decisions the, the uh, uh, observable impacts of, uh, of carbon pollution? Um, <clears throat> I think that when we look at the development goals that we have ahead of us, uh, and the UN has 17 of them, um, climate change, if happens as predicted and as the models that are most uh, accepted uh, say it will, it will impact our ability to meet each one of those goals, uh, all the 17 of them. So uh, our understanding is that we need to prioritize and continue to invest in renewable energies at all scales. Uh, we believe it, it is possible to achieve the same kind of energy access in abundance uh, through renewable energy technologies paired with, uh, of course, storage technologies, and even accelerate that to the transport sector. You see uh, the governments of China and India making commitments to go 100% electric on the transport. Uh, of course, that's going to increase electricity demand, and uh, those commitments must now be paired with commitments to also increase the amount of renewable energy generation capacity. Um, so, so when we get to uh, stages where all the vehicles are being electrified, that electricity is also clean. Um, we believe it's doable, uh, it's happening. Governments are in, around the world already adopting that vision. Uh, 48 of the world's least developed countries, the, uh, known as the Climate Vulnerable Forum, have made a commitment to go 100% renewable, uh, and now we need to find ways to support them in getting there. Thank you. Dr. Moss, uh, you know, I hear, I hear a lot of these public pronouncements by uh, countries in international forums, and sometimes I wonder whether or not they're, they're genuine, uh, thoughtful, believable commitments, or if instead they're, they're public relations, or, or maybe a little bit of both. So we, we just heard uh, about a pledge by, was it 40 countries, sir? Um, 
What are your thoughts about that, Dr. Moss? Are we really moving that boldly into a, a new frontier where that, that will be possible? 100% renewable? Um, you know, I, international fora, governments make certain commitments, you know, all the time. Some of them are real, many of them are not. Um, I would be surprised if we would see 48 countries go entirely renewable. The countries that are, have very, very high proportions of renewable are, have, are it's mostly large hydro, um, which also faces significant uh, challenges. There's still a lot of hydro potential in, in sub-Saharan Africa, so we could see a lot more of that. Um, so that, that's certainly uh, uh, one option. The thing that when, when, I, when I hear talking about the, the poorest, most vulnerable countries of the world, um, and how they're going to they're going to lead on, on this. It is true they are going to have a much higher renewables mix. These are a lot of tropical countries with a lot of wind and solar resources. Um, but these are also the poorest countries uh, in the world. And these bright lights that um, are shining on us right now, 95% uh, of the power in Washington D.C. comes from coal, gas, and nuclear. Um, and so there is uh, more than a whiff of hypocrisy when we are trying to restrict finance for uh, the po world's poorest countries uh, to use their own resources in ways that we're already doing, especially since these countries are not the ones causing uh, the emissions uh, in the first place. Well, thank you. And I request that in the future, when you answer, uh, don't be so politically correct, all right? Just tell us what you mean. All right, doctor. <laughs> so, no, uh, thank you, Dr. Moss. Um, uh, Dr. Moss, uh, could you and uh, Mr. Mitchell uh, address uh, the following? We know many U.S. companies work in the international energy sector, but their interests aren't always aligned with our government. How can we, uh, in the U.S. government, better leverage the efforts of U.S. firms in developing resources in certain countries to actually promote U.S. policies? Well, I think, let me give you an example of a company that, that I've worked with closely, and uh, Cummins, uh, and they're active, an Indiana-based company, and they're, they're active around the world. And one of the things they uh, sell is uh, diesel and natural gas gensets that are used for uh, providing remote power, uh, in some cases all the way up to multi-megawatt power systems. Um, and so, you know, I think to the, to the point that was made earlier, um, you need to have an all-of-the-above approach, and you need to make sure that you're engaging with the companies that are involved in the natural gas and the oil and gas industries in the United States and think about what role they can play in this, this broader solution of access and, and abundance. Um, what can we do to get companies more uh, directly involved or make sure we're all swimming in the same direction? A lot of it goes back to information sharing and forms and engagement. Um, the other thing is to, uh, is to ensure that there are ways that companies can co-invest in these projects and that they're not restricted in terms of uh, regulatory or, or financial restrictions on how they can invest in overseas uh, development projects. Some of that has to do with some of the tax issues of getting money invested overseas and bringing the profits back and so on and so forth, which I know we're trying to work on and folks are working on right now. I mean, those are the kinds of things that you can do. Um, but, but definitely um, the, the, the key is to get more companies involved and I think strategically to get more small to medium-sized businesses involved. Dr. Moss. 
Look, the, the United States, we're not, we don't have China's model. We're not using our companies to directly implement uh, our foreign policy, and I don't think that we should. Um, I do think, though, that the United States and the way our companies operate overseas helps to set a higher bar um, in terms of behavior, uh, in terms of transparency. I think the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act is, you know, is one of the most important things that the United States brings to the world because it, A, it helps protect our companies from, uh, from uh, poor corporate governance and misbehavior uh, in certain circumstances, but it also raises the bar for everybody else uh, and helps to create a more level playing field and promote good corporate governance and good governance uh, in the countries in which they operate. That's one of the greatest things that we can do. Senator Merkley. Uh, Dr. Moss, um, I believe you've written some about the challenge of energy-rich, fossil-rich countries facing a, the, the, the energy curse. Uh, that is, that the, the value of these resources is so high, they drive enormous amount of corruption, make decision-making on behalf of the country benefiting from those resources extremely difficult. Uh, advocates sometimes end up uh, dead. Uh, Equatorial Guinea has a per capita income of $20,000, enviable for a developing country around the world. But majority of the population of that country lives on less than $2 a day. Uh, any thoughts or insights on, on, on how we address that? Yeah, well, thank you for that question. I mean, this is one of the biggest challenges that a lot of countries face. Um, and we uh, collectively as a development community have some answers, but they're not very satisfactory. You know, uh, it seems to work best in countries that have strong institutions, uh, you know, that are relatively democratic and that, that deliver services for their people. But this is kind of akin to telling, you know, a, uh, an insomniac that you've, you've uh, diagnosed their problem and they really need, good, they need more sleep. Um, it's true, but it's not very helpful. So, um, you know, one of the things that I've been working on, I actually wrote a book with colleagues at the Center for Global Development in 2015, is if there are lessons we could learn actually from the U.S. state of Alaska which, as you know, provides uh, a dividend to every state resident every year. Now, that was the genius of, of Governor Jay Hammond back in the early 1980s. And he did that not because Alaskans were poor, but he wanted every Alaskan to feel it in their pocketbook, to pay attention to what the politicians were doing with their money, with their, with, with their natural resources. So we did a book called Oil to Cash, which explores the possibility of using citizen dividends in resource-rich countries to try to ignite uh, um, public interest, uh, greater public interest in how resources are used and to see if we can create a positive dynamic rather than the negative dynamic that, as you rightly point out, we've seen in places like Equatorial Guinea. And any success? <laughs> So, I mean, there are, there are an, a lot of countries that have, had, that have become uh, wealthy and successful from natural resources. We live in one, uh, Canada, Australia. These are resource-rich countries that have, that have managed to uh, avoid the resource curse. 
Um, there are a lot of countries on the other side that are not doing well. You know, one of my favorite countries that I've already spoken about, Nigeria, is still struggling with this. Um, I do think things are getting a lot better. We now, Nigeria now reports all, on all of their uh, oil income, where it's going. We now have a better idea of uh, how it's being spent. But it is a long process. It's a very political process. Um, and I do think we're seeing some progress with countries experimenting with, with cash dividends in very, in very specific cases. But we haven't seen the full Alaska model replicated anywhere else yet. So I'll just uh, close my comments by, by saying I, I would encourage you to be careful with charges of hypocrisy. It's, it's kind of a below the belt uh, shot. Uh, the, um, there are many parts of the developing world that are deeply afflicted by changing climate, uh, suffering uh, significant starvation. Uh, we've seen that starvation trigger uh, tribal wars and, and uh, significant chaos. Uh, in Syria, we saw the collapse of village economy help drive the civil war that led to the, the mess that we've been dealing with uh, for years and will for many years to come. Uh, the um, um, many fishing communities, uh, island communities, are extremely worried about uh, rising sea levels and saltwater infiltration of freshwater sources. And uh, many of them have fisheries that are driven uh, by coral reefs that are, that are dying. And so uh, this, this, these, are, uh, these are very important issues in global economic development. And I, I, I want to try to steer away from uh, doubting the sincerity or integrity of uh, the conversation. Well, thank you, Senator Merkley. I, I want to accept uh, some measure of responsibility. I, I, I sort of uh, led into uh, my question with Dr. Moss by uh, admitting uh, that occasionally uh, I have some skepticism when, when these international pledges are made. Uh, but um, I'm, I'm grateful for our, our constructive relationship. I understand the, the, the depth of conviction you have about the importance of these issues. He's, he's played a very important leadership role in these issues, and I'm still learning from you, so um, uh, thank you very much. With your, uh, I'm, I'm going to ask one final question of, of Dr. Moss, uh, because Power Africa has, has been such a, a, an important model, not just for the United States, but really for the world with respect to electrification and energy development. What best practices have we seen with Power Africa that might potentially be applied to other sectors of international development? Thank you for that question. And, um, and uh, let, let me just briefly just take the, the, the opportunity to clarify. I absolutely believe that developing countries are being tremendously impacted by climate change. I believe that it's real. The, the, the issue is that Tuvalu did not contribute w one bit to the global climate change challenge. That came from Europe, the United States, and other rich countries. Um, the, the countries that suffer the most are those least responsible for those, those problems. That, that, that was merely my point. Um, Power Africa, I think, has actually done um, an... Yes? Sarah Merkley, you have any, any follow-up there? I just want to make sure... Everyone's good. I want, I want to leave sharing, friends right? here. Because we want to continue to do some good <laughs> I together. I think we right? We want to do some good together. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that, that point is, uh, uh, is, is accurate. Uh, uh, in April, when I was meeting with India's power minister, 
and we were discussing the, the challenge of, of financing renewable energy. Uh, he said it's, he indicated it's somewhat irritating to have this conversation with um, Americans who for 150 years were burning the, the coal and the oil that created a lot of this problem. And uh, I acknowledge it. No, that's, that's an accurate representation of, the, of our energy history. Uh, and, but, and I said, and we can wrestle with that, but, but looking forward, what does a, a single kilowatt of new coal energy cost? And the answer is about seven cents. And what was the cost of a new kilowatt of solar energy? The answer is about three to four cents. And I said, so how do we work together to help take advantage of the changing economics for renewable energy? And I said, and by the way, there's a big difference in those two between what's outside your window. And you couldn't see in New Delhi 200 yards down the road because of the, and it wasn't just it compromises your sight. It's the fact that people breathing that is having enormous health, health consequences. And so there's a huge bonus on top of the fact that the solar is cheaper. And three months later, the power minister who told me at that meeting he was, he was going to uh, build uh, 40 new power plants uh, in a two-year period uh, announced a couple months later that they were canceling those, those plans and were doubling down on their strategy with renewable energy. And I think that's part of the conversation around the world. Dr. Moss. Okay, thank you, Chairman. So, so I think Power Africa, uh, you know, I was skeptical that Power Africa, which at times is wrangling 12 federal agencies to cooperate around a, a small set of, uh, of projects, that that would work. I think they've done a, an admirable job doing it. But I do think that, that Power Africa is kind of the exception that proves the rule that you need a uh, presidential initiative, you need a special coordinator to kind of make all of our agencies cooperate. So I'm actually quite um, skeptical that we can replicate this many times over uh, because it's such a heavy lift and it's such a, a deliberate effort. Um, I do think that it's absolutely worth continuing, um, but I, don't, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to see us try to have you know, a, a Power Asia, a Water Latin America, all of the, those efforts. I think that would be uh, an interagency nightmare. Well, thank you. We are now officially out of time. So I want to thank each of you for appearing before us today. Uh, we're going to leave the record open for additional questions until 5 p.m. on Friday. Thank you again uh, to everyone in attendance, as well as our witnesses, and uh, most especially to my ranking member, Senator Merkley. This hearing is officially adjourned. Thank you.